Well, our youngest child, Weston, turned six this past week. And for his birthday, he's been begging us for a knife. Yeah, good idea, right. A six-year-old with a knife. Well, I did do a little research, and I found a junior Swiss Army knife that is recommended for youngsters. A knife with a rounded tip for safety, a nail file, a toothpick, a pair of tweezers, and finally a little wood saw. So there you go. Weston is now the proud owner of a brand new Swiss Army knife. You have been warned. (laughs) Now, it's interesting. What fascinates him most about this knife is that little wood saw, a blade with these jagged ridges designed to eat through various materials. And so, naturally, Weston has been eagerly asking for something to saw, like a piece of wood. But his overprotective parents have been reluctant. (laughs) How silly is that, right? If you're going to give someone a pocket knife with a little wood saw, then they're going to want to do more than just carry it around in their pocket. They're going to want to use it. Weston is eager to not only receive this gift, but to put it to good use, as it was intended. Well, as I've reflected on this, I couldn't help but think about the issue of, wait for it, stewardship. Shocker, right, stewardship. Seeing everything in life as a gift intended to be put to good use. We too should be just as eager as Weston is to use our gifts as God intends. That's what our stewardship odyssey is all about. Recall that each year around this time, we as a church entered to enter into a stewardship season a month when we give close attention to how we as followers of Jesus should manage and use our our time, our talent, and treasure. And while this season only lasts for a few weeks, it's a season that is meant to remind us that stewardship is for every week, that all of life is a stewardship, that every decision we make is a stewardship decision. And so a few weeks ago, we began this season by reflecting on the nature of this lifelong journey. A journey that collectively we are on as a church, yes, but we have to remember it's also a journey that requires personal ownership. Think about it. You as an individual are given an allotment of gifts that no one else in the world has. No one. The combination of your skills and abilities, your personality and upbringing, your family and home, your your education, your job, even your pain and you're hurt. No one else in the world has a stewardship quite like you do. And so what are you going to do with this allotment of gifts? And how does your stewardship integrate into the life of the All Saints community? Well, these are questions, as you know, that will take a lifetime to work out. This is our stewardship odyssey. That was what we talked about in week one. And then in week two, Father Chuck laid out an excellent blueprint for us when it comes to the nuts and bolts of our stewardship, the role that gratitude plays, and and developing a mindset that sees all things as gifts from God, the importance of tithing, the joy that flows from generosity, and then, of course, paying close attention to what shapes your thinking when it comes to our possessions. If you missed his sermon, you really need to visit our website and give it a listen. Well, today we arrive at week three, a day when we look for help from the outside, when we're on the lookout 
for fellow travelers. More specifically, for examples to follow. Models of a Jesus-shaped stewardship who will lead us on the way, who know where they're going. This, my friends, is a crucial step for us. You know, because without examples, all this stewardship talk remains in the abstract, up there in the clouds. I mean, we need people who will flesh this stuff out for us on the ground so that we can see it, take it in, and, and try it out for ourselves. I mean, you can read all you want about woodworking or sewing. You can earn a law degree, a doctorate in ministry. I mean, that's great. But you will only go so far until you are given human examples to follow. Mentors who will model for you what this is supposed to look like. How foolish if we think stewardship is any different. We all need examples to follow when it comes to a godly life of stewardship. Who might those examples be for you? Who comes to your mind? To whom do you turn for guidance when it comes to managing and using your own time, talent, and treasure for the kingdom of God? Maybe we should put it this way. Who here at All Saints should be out in front leading the way on our stewardship odyssey? Well, our scripture readings today provide us with a most unusual and surprising answer to these questions. Models of stewardship we would least expect. We're not to look to those in the long robes, those who are seated in places of honor. We're not to look to the Warren Buffetts or the Bill Gates of this world, not even to Dave Ramsey or Father Wes Christie. No, we're to look to the poor, the widows, those on the margins of society, those in desperate situations. It's among them where we will find examples to follow the ones who can teach us the true meaning of stewardship. People like this unnamed foreigner, this destitute woman found in our reading today from 1 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> Let me provide you with a little background first. Ahab is the king of Israel at this time. And to give you a sense of what the author of 1 Kings thinks about Ahab, here's the short summary he provides at the end of chapter 16. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Not a very good assessment. I mean, what in the world did this guy do? Well, among other things, King Ahab built a temple and an altar right in the middle of Israel's capital city, not for the God of Israel, but for one of the Canaanite gods, a god named Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god, a storm god, thought to control the weather. Most importantly, the much-needed rains uh, for a good harvest. And King Ahab, he wanted in on the action. And so he needed to be called out. This is where the prophet Elijah first shows up in the Bible, right here at the beginning of chapter 17. Elijah confronts King Ahab and makes this declaration. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And so you see what's going on, right? This is the beginning of a showdown 
between the God of Israel and the storm god Baal. A showdown that will culminate years later in that famous duel between Elijah and the priest of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. But in the meantime, the rain does stop. And the land suffers from a drought of epic proportions. It's during these years Elijah goes into hiding. You might remember how God led him to a stream near the Jordan River where he could find water and and how the ravens would swoop down to bring him bread to eat. But this situation only lasts for so long as the drought presses in and even dries up his source of water. That's where we come to our passage. When God directs Elijah to go to Sidon into the heart of Canaanite territory, instructing him not only to find a a foreign woman, but a widow, a widow who will now be his source of sustenance for food and water. But when he arrives, we discover just how destitute this woman is. Come to find out, she barely has enough food to prepare one final meal for her and her young boy, after which they have resigned themselves to die of starvation. I mean, this is a a desperate situation. My goodness, Lord, why didn't you send me to a wealthy businessman? Someone with means, with resources and power. Someone who, who could so easily give out of their abundance. Now, that's not what Elijah says. That's what I would have said. And neither does Elijah say, uh, never mind, dear woman. You, you clearly need this more than I do. Go, you and your son. You eat your fill, you be well. No. Elijah tells her, don't be afraid. Do as you have said, but first... Make a little for me, and then God will provide you with enough food and water to survive the drought. I don't know about you, but this sounds incredibly insensitive. Not just telling her not to fear, but also promising her future provision in the midst of a drought if only she would part with the only provision she has. Sounds quite absurd, really. And yet it's here at the intersection of fear and despair where a radical kind of stewardship begins to take root. She appears to be stuck. If she had an abundance from which to give, there would be no need to fear. But then again, there would be no need for faith. But if she gives out of her poverty, yes, there would clearly be reason to fear. But then there would be an opening an opening for faith to overcome her fear. The widow takes the opening. Elijah's seemingly insensitive words become for her an invitation. An invitation to lay aside her fear, trust the Lord, and give up the certain for the uncertain. And in doing so, the Lord provides, and she becomes for us a remarkable model of stewardship. You see, we like to think that we see everything right side up, but we really don't. We see everything upside down. We think that generosity is born out of having plenty to spare, but it's not. We think that trusting God with our resources come, comes with having more than enough, but it doesn't. Listen, if you're waiting to activate your generosity until you have more, 
If you're waiting to trust God with your resources until your income rises to a certain level, you need to wake up because it's not going to happen. Faithful stewardship is born instead by looking at the impossibilities of our circumstances. At the handful handful of meal in a jar, a little oil in a jug, in the middle of a massive drought, and then turning to God and saying, Lord, it's yours. It's all yours. What will you have me do with the little that I have? I give up the certain for the uncertain. I put my faith above my fears. I think it's telling that Jesus draws attention to this widow in his inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4. Of all the stories in the Old Testament, this is the one he points to that day in his hometown synagogue so as to remind those closest to him that God sees things differently than we do. You see, we are the ones with an upside-down vision of the world, an upside-down vision of stewardship, which means that all of us are in desperate need of examples to follow, counterexamples to our culture, examples who will upend our skewed vision and show us what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. This is something Jesus loves to do. Jesus loves to highlight as examples to follow those who we typically overlook. Blessed are the poor, he says. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are persecuted and oppressed. Look to these as models for kingdom living. To the disciples who were caught arguing over which one of them was the greatest, Jesus puts a little child on his knees and says, excuse me, excuse me, look over here. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Or to the Canaanite woman who begs for the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus says, everybody stop. Everybody stop what you're doing. Look at this. Look at how great this woman's faith is. She is a model for you. And then, of course, in our gospel passage today from Mark 12, as the stewardship gurus of that day dump their large sums of money into the treasury, the sounds of heavy coins clanking against each other, the noise gaining the accolades of the crowds, Jesus once again flips the script. Don't look at them, Jesus says. Look at this poor widow who's giving, though it didn't make a sound, is sending shockwaves throughout the kingdom of God. Because she has put in more than everyone else combined. Friends, it's people like these who have something to teach us about the true meaning of stewardship. Not the big givers of our passage. Because the big givers aren't really putting faith above their fears, are they? No, they're giving only as far as their fears will allow. But this woman, like the widow back in 1 Kings... She gives up the certain for the uncertain because her faith is larger than her fear. She has nothing left to hold on to except for her trust in the Lord, and she discovers that's more than enough. So let's return once more to our question at hand. Who are our models of stewardship today? To whom do we turn for guidance when it comes to managing and using our time and talent and treasure? Who should be out in front on our stewardship odyssey? 
Well, let me encourage you to look to those you least expect. Those who have been in desperate situations. Those who have learned to put faith above fear. Who have learned to trust God not only in plenty, but in times of want. Perhaps it is a widow. I know a few here at All Saints who model for us an extraordinary life of stewardship. If only we have eyes to see. Perhaps it's a young family barely making ends meet, but who have given themselves to a different kind of lifestyle, who aren't running around trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know, trying to purchase their way to happiness, but who instead eagerly and with joy learn to live on less so they can give away more. If only we have eyes to see. Perhaps it is someone who is blessed with a lot of money, a lot of resources, but you'd never know because she doesn't let it get to her. Instead, she's living life with open hands, like Weston, eager to use the gifts God has given her in the way they are intended to be a blessing to others. If only we had eyes to see. Friends, let us not look to the obvious nor overlook the unexpected Look not to those who give out of their abundance, but to those who trust God with everything they have, those who have learned to put faith over fear, and then let's put them out in front and let them lead us on this incredible journey on our stewardship odyssey. Heavenly Father, we admit that we readily miss great models of stewardship in our life because we are enamored by the glitter We're enamored by those who give out of their abundance, and we fail to recognize those who have truly learned to put faith over fear and model for us a radical kind of generosity, a radical kind of stewardship. May we find those people. May they be models for us. May we model our lives after them so that together we can become a community that offers all that we have to the use of your kingdom. We pray this In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.